Welcome to Take This Poem Podcast, where we explore the rich, wild things that good poems can do in the everyday lives of ordinary folks. I'm your host, Mary Guidis. Whether you're a longtime poetry lover like I am, or just barely interested, I invite you to take this poem. I hope it amends the soil of your life. History is a Burning Chariot by Charles Wright. It is a good-looking evening, stomped and chained. The clouds sit like majesties in their blue chairs, as though doing their nails. The creek, tripartite and unreserved, sniddles along under its bald and blown-down bridges. It is a grace to be a watcher on such a scene. So balance me with these words. Have I said them before? I have. Have I said them the same way? I have. Will I say them again? Who knows what darkness snips our hearts. I've done the full moon. I've done the half moon and the quarter moon. I've even done the Patrick Spence moon as seen by one of his drowned sailors. Tonight is the full moon again and I won't watch it. These things have a starting place and they have an ending. Render the balance, Lord. Send it back up to the beginning. This episode is for all of you poem takers, but it's specifically dedicated to my poetry buddy and faithful co-host Keith whose voice is very familiar to you because he has been doing half of the episodes this year. I sent him today's poem a few weeks ago, and I got the feeling that perhaps the poem didn't make a whole lot of sense to him. I think his words were that he couldn't make heads or tails of it. And if he couldn't make heads or tails of it, he probably didn't understand why this would be a poem to adore, which I do. I'm not going to play it cool on this episode. I'm just going to tell you up front, I am crazy about this poem. And I'm crazy about many of the later poems of Charles Wright that are found in his book entitled Caribou, which was published when he was almost 80 years old. So I promised Keith I would make an episode about this poem, and maybe it will help win him over or at least help him make heads or tails of this poem. And I admit there is a bit of obscurity there. That's why I read it to you without any introduction, so that you could just take it cold, see what you could see from a first listen. And I'm wondering, I wish we could talk. I wonder if you're befuddled or if you had any sort of insight or understanding when you were listening, or if you would be able to pause your device and tell someone else what that poem was about. I think that there's a little bit of obscurity, partly because of the metaphysical subject matter that Wright is trying to tackle here. So I don't think it's that there's no meaning when it gets confusing. No, no, there is meaning. It just doesn't work its way out in a straightforward thesis sentence. And you probably know by now that I think if you want a straightforward thesis, you can go get yourself an essay. Poems are free to do something different. And Wright's poems show that off so beautifully. They involve me in the work. I think that's part of why coming to understand these poems 
feels like an act of synthesis as I read, and it feels very good for my tired old brain to be part of that process. So what do I mean by synthesis? Well, I'm going to talk about two different ways that I see this delightful call for me to do the work when I'm reading Wright's poetry. One of them is the way he walks right down the middle of dichotomies. I'm going to talk about that, bringing two halves of something together that seem like they should be opposites. And then the other is the way his poems, to me, echo and call out to other poems and poets that I already have buried in my subconscious from reading them in the past. Okay, so first, the dichotomies. So Charles Wright, it seems like he just gallivants down the imaginary line between what might be thought of as opposites. So the serious and the silly, dark, light, hope, despair. He doesn't choose just one. The poem contains both. So this whole poem, I do think, has undertones of somber discouragement um, resignation, futility. I see that in lines like the bald and blown down bridges. That sounds like decay, doesn't it? And toward the end of the poem, the speaker says he won't watch the moon. And that feels like a resignation again and a kind of futility. I've done this. I've done that. I'm not going to watch tonight. And this, all the talk about the endings. It just has shadows of death in it. The end of life, maybe the end of hope to some extent. But even with that heaviness and darkness, there's also parts that make me giggle, like creeks sniddling along beneath those bald and blown down bridges. I think sniddles is such a great word. Um, and right there with the majestic stomping evening and the majestic clouds, all of a sudden... The metaphor is of girls getting their nails done. I did not see that coming. So he's using this frivolous sort of um, simile in a poem that's talking about a very awe-inspiring scene. And those things coming together, to me, are delightful. And I love the delightful coming together of hope and hopelessness, too. The same speaker who toward the end of the poem says he's had enough of moon watching. That's the same person earlier in the poem who was staring wide-eyed at the clouds and the creek and boldly declaring it all a grace to see that scene. So which is it? Do we watch or not watch? Do we go to nature and receive grace there? Or is the cycle of the earth just going around and around in an impersonal, wearying way? And I think this poem says both. The other duality I see often in Wright's poems is the split between formal and colloquial or conversational language. Um, Wright was born in Tennessee, and it seems like, to me, those people who have Appalachian roots can often just pull this off so well, like Morris Manning, who I have um, mentioned and brought poems of his here before. But there's almost always a little interjection of folksy, conversational speech in Wright's poems. In this one, I see it in the string of questions and answers. Have I said these words before? I have. Have I said them the same way? I have. Will I say them again? Who knows what darkness snips our hearts? 
And at the end, he addresses the Lord directly in a conversational, render the balance, Lord. And the cadence of a couple of these lines reminds me so much of a Southern preacher, like something out of the mouth of a Flannery O'Connor character. I sense a playfulness in those um, parts that have a touch of religiousness to them, and it borders on making fun. Maybe it comes so close. But then these lines are nails that hold the poem down. They serve as moments of clarity and confidence. Um, So it just kind of reminds me of when smart, saucy kids make a comment, and I'm just thinking, all right, that was a little sassy. I also see your point. Like, this is a fine line here. Um, So Wright just, I think, often gallivants along that line, too, between respectfulness and weightiness and a little bit of light sass. But before I leave the subject of dichotomies, I think all this balance between opposites that I've been talking about and the tension and the harmony that come from um, the poem simultaneously choosing neither side or both side of these, I think it can be boiled down to a tension between what I see as Eastern religious thought and Western religious thought, um, more specifically between Zen Buddhism and Christianity. And I do know that both of those influence right from interviews that I've read. And more specifically, even than that, I sense attention between detachment and attachment. So I think the dark and light, heavy, silly, formal, folksy are all flowing out of this question, is it better to transcend this material existence or to immerse in the dirty incarnational world? Um, I realize I could be reading my own Christian perspective onto right, but what I sense in this poem and others is an attempt to go the way of Zen detachment, to choose that. Um, But it keeps getting interrupted by Christian roots and a bond to the physical world that isn't so easy to break, after all. I think he has a poem specifically about this called something like Chinoiserie. I don't even know how to pronounce that. I'll try to find it and share it with you. But one where he talks about it's not as easy to be Zen and detached as it looks. People make it look so easy, but then when you try it, it doesn't work so well. So I think the speaker of a given poem might be conflicted. And the poem seems to answer yes to both, to renunciation and detachment from the world, because those things are necessary to some extent for a human soul to develop and for a human soul to be ready to say goodbye at the end of a long life, like Charles writes. But also it seems to say yes to grace that's found in an ordinary evening and in being a part, not detached, but a part of the cycle of endings and beginnings on this planet. And in the end, it's the Lord who's called on to render the balance when things don't add up in our human estimation. So I, again, I could be wrong, but I think it just delights me to see an attempted drift toward detachment and that sort of thing being yanked back by a rope of attachment to the physical world. Because I think in my daily life, that struggle is definitely there. And it felt like a recognition to read this poem 
and many of rights in this book, like I was reading something I already knew or reading a thought process I already had experienced. And I don't know, reminds me of being a teenager listening to pop music and thinking, oh, that song, those lyrics are exactly how I feel right now with my broken heart. It's kind of a more grown up version of that, I guess. Right gets me. You don't have to pick between silly and serious. Both are part of life and they're both in this poem and it works. Keith, are you regretting <laughs> expressing your perplexity? Keith is like, oh, next time I'll just say great poem. I'm not going to um, make any comments because I actually haven't even gotten to my second part, which is that this poetry involves me when I'm reading it because of the way it evokes and calls out to other works. So the ones that came to me on the top of my head were Ecclesiastes, Walt Whitman's Leaves of Grass, and T.S. Eliot. So when I went to go, in order to record this, to go find the sections that it was reminding me of every single time in all three of those places, I actually found more than I had even remembered. So it turned out to be a really fun task. So bear with me. This is a little trip down um, Mary's mind of mental associations. And I'm going to read to you several passages. I hope you'll listen carefully and be able to take them in, even on the fly like this. So the resigned talk about the cycle of the moon, full, half, new. I think the Patrick Spence moon is talking about a new moon. I went back and looked at that ballad and I believe it's a new moon that that's talking about. So the moon is moving through all its phases. Who even cares? Who's going to look at it? Don't even bother. Those sorts of lines reminded me of Ecclesiastes. In verses 5 through 7 of the first chapter, it says, The sun also rises, and the sun goes down, and it hastens to the place where it arose. The wind goes toward the north, and it turns around to the south. The wind whirls about continually and comes again on its circuit. All the rivers run into the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place from which the rivers come, there they return again. So the ends and beginnings that are connected to each other, like in the last line of his poem, render the balance lord, send it up to the beginning. These things have an end and they have a beginning. Let's go back to the beginning. I'm at the end. That's how that poem ends reminded me so much of this cycle in Ecclesiastes. But then I also found later in the chapter, these verses, 9 through 11, that which has been is what will be, that which is done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which it may be said, see, this is new? It has already been in ancient times before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of things that are to come. Do you hear it? When I read the poem again at the end, I bet you will hear this beautiful, poetic expression of the feudal, cyclic nature of um, nature itself. So it also reminded me of Walt Whitman, specifically Leaves of Grass. And I remember Walt Whitman asking a lot of questions in that long, juicy, spicy poem. The ones I found we're in chapter two of Leaves of Grass. I'm sorry, section two. He asks these questions. Have you reckoned a thousand acres much? Have you reckoned the earth much? 
Have you practiced so long to learn to read? Have you felt so proud to get at the meaning of poems? Isn't that cute? That was a section that I was looking for. But then in section 51, this is what I found. Whitman writes, do I contradict myself? Very well then, I contradict myself. I am large, I contain multitudes. And that sounds to me like what I was saying about Wright's poem. You guys, I found this after I planned all those thoughts out for you. Um, so it was amazing to find that. It reminded me so much of the, um, do I repeat myself? Very well, I do. That was in Wright's poem. Okay, let's see. There was one more. Oh, T.S. Eliot. Someday I will do an episode on T.S. Eliot. I have tried and I have failed multiple times. I have files saved of me bumbling around trying to find something to say about Eliot's poetry. So someday I will. This is my chance to just read you a few lines. This is from T.S. Eliot's quartet called Little Gidding. The part that I was looking for is in section five, and it simply says this, what we call the beginning is often the end, and to make an end is to make a beginning. The end is where we start from. Okay, sounds like a puzzle, right? Some sort of sphinx giving you a puzzle. Do sphinxes give puzzles? I don't know. Mashing all my mythology together. Um, and I think by now you'll see why Wright's poem would have called that to mind. But look what I found in section three. This is something I don't even remember reading before. And it talks about detachment. This is harder, but here we go. Five lines. There are three conditions which often look alike, yet differ completely. They flourish in the same hedgerow. Attachment to self and to things and to persons. Detachment from self and from things and from persons and growing between them indifference, which resembles the others as death resembles life. I'm gonna read that one more time. Sorry. <laughs> there are three conditions which often look alike, yet differ completely, flourish in the same hedgerow. Attachment to self and to things and to persons. Detachment from self and from things and from persons and growing between them indifference, which resembles the other, others as death resembles life. So I see this as Eliot saying, attachment and detachment are closer to each other than you might think. What is different is indifference. Indifference is like death. Attachment and detachment are more like life. So although these three things are together and growing in the same hedgerow, three plants growing side by side, two are equated to life and one is equated to death. And I do think indifference is something that you will not find in Wright's poetry. He might try or feign indifference, but really it's attachment and detachment that wrestle back and forth. And both of those, I think why it works so well is like Elliot is saying, those things are closer to each other than they might seem. They're both ways of trying to live and trying to um, push forward and trying to make sense of the world and to find out how we're going to live. And indifference 
is the way to go wrong and to stop trying. Elliot has poems about that too, about the futility of trying to put something into words in a way that will be understood or will stick this time and that it doesn't work. It never sticks. There's nothing new but our business as writers, as meaning makers, people, is to keep trying. The rest is not our business. I will not quote any more T.S. Eliot in this episode. I promise. Okay, we're already at 19 minutes. I wonder if anything I've said has shed any sort of appreciative light on this poem. I hope so. I needed to say it so my mind wouldn't explode. So maybe this will be a self-serving episode, even though I was hoping it would be a Keith-serving episode. And a service to others of you as well, of course. The last thing I need to say is that I am not the one who discovered that Charles Wright is a rad poet. Okay, did I write down? He has won the Pulitzer Prize. He has won the National Book Award. He has been the Poet Laureate of our great nation. Um, I thought I wrote down some more things. He's been writing for decades and decades. So my point is just that the guy knows how to write. He's amazing. However, I do hope you will check out his most recent book. I think it's maybe six years old now, Caribou. Even look inside on Amazon. You don't have to buy it on Amazon, but you can look inside there and you can see the form that he drifted into or fell into or chose for this last work. I hope it's not his last work. I just mean the last one that was published. It's a unique, intuitive, elegant form. It seems to make so much sense with his subject matter. It fits it so beautifully. Along the left, many lines are justified like kind of a normal poem, but then he has little bits of lines, ends of lines, maybe a whole line themselves, scooched way over to the right, sort of dangling off the ends of the lines that came before. It adds a lot of space um, in the poem. Somehow when you look, it adds more whiteness and more breath. And it seems like a refusal to fit completely into something expected. So it seems like a long, solid line of poetry coming out from the left is formal, and then these little bits mixed in are echo to me, the folksiness, the lightness, the silliness. And it's not that they're jokey in any way. I don't mean to make it sound like that, but they they add a levity. Take a look if you get a chance. It's a great book of poetry if you're feeling yourself going through any sort of midlife crisis. I say this is my prescription for you. Take this poem. Take this book of poems, Caribou. And uh, call me in the morning. Let me know how it worked. I am going to read it again. History is a Burning Chariot by Charles Wright. It is a good-looking evening, stomped and chained. The clouds sit like majesties in their blue chairs, as though doing their nails. The creek, tripartite and unreserved, sniddles along under its bald and blown-down bridges. 
It is a grace to be a watcher on such a scene. So balance me with these words. Have I said them before? I have. Have I said them the same way? I have. Will I say them again? Who knows what darkness snips our hearts. I've done the full moon, I've done the half moon and the quarter moon. I've even done the Patrick Spence moon as seen by one of his drowned sailors. Tonight is the full moon, again, and I won't watch it. These things have a starting place and they have an ending. Render the balance, Lord. Send it back up to the beginning. Part of my vision for this podcast was to have it be interactive. I pictured a virtual bonfire poetry reading where friends, family, local poets, and you can come together to warm our hands on some poetry. If there's a poem that has done some action in your everyday life, surprised you, delighted you, or maybe just more quietly worked its way into your bones, you know I would love to hear about it. Email me at takethispoempodcast at gmail.com and let me know your story. Maybe you can join me in sharing it with others as well.